Welcome to our hen house. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne's guest will be Dr. Andrew Rowan, who has been an important figure in the animal protection movement for many years and most recently is the co-author with Arnold R. Luke of Underdogs, Pets, Poverty, and People. And he's the founder of Wellbeing International. Well, that's cool. I think we've been, we, we he's definitely been on our radar for quite some time. Yeah, no, he's very well known in this movement. And I don't know why we haven't had him on before this, but I'm glad we had him on now. I particularly wanted to interview him about this book, of which he's the co-author. And because it's a topic in which I am particularly interested, and I imagine a lot of you are too. And it's the issue of the progress we've made for dogs and, you know, to a lesser degree, but a real degree for cats. And, and how there is so much less killing of them. But the animals who belong to people who don't have a lot of money, who are poor, get treated incredibly differently. Both the ability of people to take care of them and the the willingness of, of social institutions to reach out to help these animals. They just don't get the same. And this book is a really interesting case study of two communities, one in Central America, one in the United States, uh, and and how they deal with, with these issues, people's attitudes toward their animals, misconceptions about people's attitudes toward their animals. So it's a really interesting conversation and one that I think we can't have too often. It's definitely the issue about dogs and cats that I most like to cover. Yeah, totally. I'm excited to hear it. It's an interesting counterpart to our interview with the vegan veterinarian a few weeks ago, for sure, I think. Both relating to companion animals and some of the current issues. Dr. Yeah. Andrew Knight. The other the other big issue with companion animals, of course, is what they eat. And that doesn't so much have to do with the welfare of the dogs and cats, though it has something to do with it. But it has to do with the welfare and the lives of all of the animals who they are fed so, yeah, a lot going on. And we've had interviews before on this kind of topic. Katya Gunther's book on uh, animals in, in California, in communities of, that are lower income, and the issues there, and, and others as well. People sometimes think that the dog and cat issues, or at least the dog issues, are kind of solved. They sure ain't. Hmm. Thankfully, factory farming is solved. Oh, wait, no, it's not. I forgot. But if you want it to be, then you should check out this event we have coming up in just a few weeks in right outside of Rochester, New York. Let Everybody me, come to Rochester. Let me tell you about it. So this Labor Day weekend, you can enjoy a fun-filled evening with me and Marianne. And this is part of the Eat Plants, Save the Planet annual fundraiser hosted by Flock member and activist and former guest on our henhouse, Pearl Monique Cole Brunt. And these festivities this year are happening on Saturday, September 3rd, just outside of Rochester in Pittsford. It's $15, and you can join us at Kings Bend Park in Pittsford for an inspired discussion about veganism and activism an interactive Q&A, a film screening of the award-winning documentary Milked, which I'm excited about, complimentary copies of Veg News magazine, and amazing vegan food. I hear there's going to be chili and cornbread, which are my two favorite food groups. Yes, your $15 not only gets you us, which would be such a bargain just to get us, yeah, we're, but it actually gets you dinner as We're well. usually much more expensive <laughs> than that. And also, if you have $45, you can unlock VIP goodies and you can join us for an intimate gathering at the all-vegan gift store Clio & Kin, which is like my favorite store here. And it is going to be complete with vegan wine and cheese and swag bags, signed copies of both of my books, and you can get 10% off at the all-vegan store Clio & Kin. So it's at 6 p.m. or 4 p.m. for the VIPs, and all proceeds are going to our henhouse. So that is friggin' cool. I wonder if we can get 10% off, too. I love that store. Well, I don't see why not. It's not, a, though it's a vegan store, that doesn't mean it's a food store. It's 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 like beautiful housewares and some some lovely clothing items and, and bags, purses, and just... Just a really interesting variety, all vegan mm -hmm. and, you know, by ethical vegans. Yeah. They're in it for the animals. My favorite kind of vegan. Yeah, it is a incredible. Lots of books, too, like cookbooks and other vegan books, things like that. Cleo and Kin is like 
amazing. Okay, follow them on Instagram. So let's talk about a, a couple other things going on in the news. First, let's talk about horse-drawn carriages. Actually, by the time this airs, I will have just gotten back from New York City, so I'm sure I'll have plenty to report on. But for as long as I can remember, this has been going on, and it's been like quite a fight. But once again, there's drama and sadness, unnecessary cruelty going on in the horse-drawn carriage industry as recently yet another horse has collapsed due to the heat. The horse's quote-unquote owners, I think, are, are claiming that, that the horse had neurological disease, but, you know, it happened to be in the 90s, so mm-hmm. I don't think that was the sole reason. If the horse did have neurological disease, why wasn't the horse being treated? I don't know. Really, really sad because, you know, 45th Street and 9th Avenue, this is midtown Manhattan. It's a place nobody really wants to be feeling vulnerable in. And here's this poor horse lying on the ground. The police are trying desperately to resuscitate the horse, squirting it with water and um, and and whatever. The driver was just kind of sitting there. People got loads of video of this. Before mm-hmm. the police came, the driver was seen trying to hit the horse to to get the horse to come to get up. It was, it's all just tragic. Yeah. And you're right. This issue, like when I first got involved in animal rights, this issue was was already kind of an old animal rights issue in in New York City. And there have been so many times when everybody thought we were on the verge of making progress. Certainly when Mayor de Blasio came in, he promised that this was going to be a big issue. Not pretty much. Well, not nothing happened. There were a few, you know, they, they put a few regulations in and they kind of fixed it around the edges. But it's crazy. It's just crazy. This is barbaric. Like, like who who wants to have horses pulling people around in carriages in a crowded city in this day and age? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just never, never fails to astound one. You know, as you become more familiar with it, if you live in New York City, you realize it's a totally political issue. These horse and carriage owners have long been uh, very, very connected. God knows with whom, but certainly with uh, certain powers that be, particularly in Queens. I mean, the history goes way, way back. It's a very complex political issue, and it's just a tragedy. And right now, there is a big push in the city council to finally get them banned. There's one particular city council member who's who's really working on it. They, they have a particular project that they're working on that um, has to do with replacing the horses' carriages with with old-fashioned cars, which would, you know, the tourists who come, they don't care what they're riding around in. They just want to do something iconic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't don't know what they want. They're not going to care whether it's fancy-ass cars, old cars, or or horses. They, you know, people just want to say they did something. Yeah, I remember back in the day in New York City, like, the horse-drawn carriage industry had associated me with some campaign. I had, like, loosely been involved in it, but I was mostly just, like, assisting people. It was a very long time ago. Basically, at the start of Twitter, there was, like, this Twitter bullying, this, like, you know, internet bullying against me from everyone. Those are ruthless people. Yeah, it was horrible. And it, I don't think people really had context or rules for for how to deal with this. I'm not sure they do it now either, but... Anyway, it is it is definitely ruthless to say the least. And I, I remember when Liam Neeson stood up for the horse and carriage people. I never saw another. I always liked him as an actor. I never saw another another Liam Neeson movie. I don't know whether it's still very very uh, the old uh, old school Irish uh, you know New Yorkers from Queens. I don't know whether they're still in charge and control of this. But yeah, it's always been. I'm sad to say. Yeah, it's, it's where it's come from. It's a deep dark story, a deep, dark New York story. And the victims are these poor horses. They just get worn out. And, you know, they're bought usually from from the Amish or whatever when they're, you know, a little played out, or they used to be anyway, and, and, and but not quite ready to, to die. And that's what happens to them. Unfortunately, I think Liam Neeson is a racist asshole, just for the record. <laughs> I think he, he got in trouble after that, and it came to light that he had made all these racist remarks. So, you know. Well, kind of all goes together. Yeah, that's true. In other news, from Manhattan to Switzerland, let's let's talk about this, this other story. Swiss factory farming ban to be decided at the ballot box. Interesting. Yeah, well, Switzerland, like some states in the United States, particularly California, is very big on ballot initiatives. 
And they've done a few on animals. And now this is a pretty bold one. This is in Basel, which is just one canton, or that's where it's originating. I guess the, the vote will be for all of Switzerland. And we once had Charlotte Blattner on the um, the Animal Law podcast talking about the prior initiative, a ballot initiative that had to do with primates and the use of primates in research. And it was not successful, so they decided to go even bigger, because why not? And Switzerland already has. This article that we're looking at, which is from Swiss Info, claims, and it's actually really true, they have really strong regulations about the treatment of animals. Strong in the sense that they're stronger than everywhere else, you know, not strong enough to like, <laughs> to like satisfy me or you. So everybody's saying, well, why do we have to be better? We're already so great. And they they do have, you know, limits on stocking levels and, and a lot of uh, welfare provisions in their law. But this group, Sentience is the name of the group, wants them to go further. And they have like a organic kind of uh, certification. And they want to use that for the full country of Switzerland, which would basically involves them being kept in very small groups and having a lot of room to to roam, which is basically just to get rid of what are called factory farms. It wouldn't keep them from being killed for food. And, you know, it'd be really interesting to see how this goes. Uh, you just n never know how to, how to predict any of this. So I think this is a great thing to be kept an eye on. The Oregon Ballot Initiative, which we talked about last year, which would actually prohibit the killing of animals, is, is, is being reintroduced. So, you know, it's taking a very different approach to kind of the same basic problem. Mm -hmm. But it would be amazing, mm -hmm. amazing if they got the Swiss population to actually agree to to impose these standards. They're, they're called, the I think, the B.O. Suisse uh, standards onto everything. That, why not? If they're saying, if the people who are against this are saying, well, we already do what's humane, then how do they explain that there's the, there are these better standards for uh, B.O. Suisse, uh, which is their organic standards? So that, that's got to be even more humane mm -hmm. or less inhumane, which is really what we mean all the time, isn't it? We were in Basel once. They had a ton of vegan food. Yeah, no, they... There was really good food in Basel. I liked Basel, except for the fact that they have factory farming in Switzerland. So that's a reason not to like Basel or any place else in Switzerland, though you can like it better than any place else on the planet. On that note, with absolutely no transition whatsoever, I think we should talk to our guest today because I'm very curious about what he has to say. Dr. Andrew Rowan founded the Tufts Center for Animals and Public Policy and started the first graduate degree in the world on animals and public policy back in 1995. He is the founding editor of AnthroZoos and author and editor of numerous books on human-animal issues, including the four-volume State of the Animals series, and most recently, the co-author with Arnold R. Luke of Underdogs, Pets, People, and Poverty. He is president of Wellbeing International, a new nonprofit seeking solutions for people, animals, and the environment. He will be joining Marianne right after this. I'm Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery, and today I want to share my love story with you. But first, I want to let you know that you can get 15% off your next order at miyoko's.com with offer code henhouse15. Growing up, my father and I would travel to faraway places in search of cheese. Ripe cheese, stinky cheese, velvety, soft cheese. It was an obsession we bonded over. Our shared love for cheese took me to France, Italy, and nearby Sonoma. As I got older, my tastes remained the same, but my values changed. I became a true lover of animals, not as ingredients, but as living beings. In those days, there was no way to satisfy both my palate and my soul, so I started making cheese myself by culturing plant milks instead of animal milks. Through trial and many errors, through the noise of naysayers and through a commitment to compassion and craft, I made something I love, and I'm here to share it with you for you to share with your loved ones. At Miyoko's Creamery, we craft the finest plant milk dairy products in the world, right here in the heart of California's famed wine region, Sonoma. Through our craft, plant milk, cheese, and butter, we honor traditional dairy-making methods while finding novel ingredients with nature's bounty. The food we make is made of love for the planet, for all living beings, and for you. With Love Miyoko. 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code henhouse15. 
Welcome to our Hen House, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you. You have such a long and illustrious history in the animal protection movement. And today we're talking to you specifically because I was so intrigued by this book. But I also want to talk to you about all the other work you're doing as well. And I do want to talk about the book because it is a, it's an issue that I am particularly interested in. And that, of course, has, relates to the relationship between dogs and, and poverty, I guess. And, and we tend to think that many of the problems associated with unhomed animals, at least dogs, maybe not cats so much, are somewhat resolved, uh, you know, that we've made a really lot of progress. But the fact is, just as people who are dealing with poverty live very different lives from those who are middle or upper class, animals whose people are dealing with poverty may live very different lives as well. And that's really what you're talking about in this book. Can you just talk us a little bit of the overall view of some of these contrasts between the lives that animals live? Sure. Poverty is, uh, affects not just people, but the animals that share their homes with them. I've dealt a lot with the issue overseas, uh, looking at street dogs and roaming cats overseas. So it's not generally regarded as a big issue in the United States, but it, it is. It has a significant, I mean, poverty, of course, has a significant impact, whether it's in the United States or in India, for example. It's a real really important factor in looking at just how people interact with their animals and just how the human-animal bond develops. It doesn't affect the strength of the bond, but it does affect some of the conditions that are surrounded. And the the book, uh, which I should have named Underdogs, Pets, People, and Poverty, reports on a a specific study which is done in two different locations, one in the U.S., one in Costa Rica. And it set out to examine one aspect of of the issue of poverty, and that's basic vet care, which obviously is very important for people who are keeping animals. I felt like you tried to look at one thing and and ended up having to look at, because all the issues are so intertwined, you looked at many other things as well. And it's really a fascinating look into the lives of dogs who are living with people who are living in poverty. Can you just tell us a little bit, though, about the initial specific goal of the study regarding vet care? So Ani Aluk is my co-author on the book. is a very skilled and insightful um, ethnographer. What that means is he goes into communities and talks to people about particular topics. And Ani, many years ago, I first met Ani when I was up at Boston at Tufts Veterinary School, and he was then interested in the whole issue of animal research and what was going on inside laboratories that were using animals for research. And so I was able to help him gain access to some laboratories, and several papers came out of that. And so we've kept in touch uh, over the years, and he's always looking for a new research project. And I thought that a research project that looked at different um, cultures in terms of how they engage with their animals would be something that would be of interest to him, and it turns out it was. And so we were able to find some funding and connect him with a group in Costa Rica that I've had a long-standing relationship with. And so he went down to Costa Rica and looked at the ethnography of human pet, or mostly dogs, but there are a few cats in the, in the book, how people interact with the animals. And of course, Costa Rica is, is not as high-income a country as the United States. It's medium, sort of medium to low. And so he was looking at how low-income people in Costa Rica dealt with some of the issues that they were dealing with, and specifically how they dealt with the issue of veterinary care. That led him then to connect with a colleague at the Humane Society who was involved in a program called Pets for Life, which essentially focuses on low-income communities in the United States and some of the differences that you see in terms of the pet human-pet relationship in low-income communities compared to medium or high-income communities. For example, pets in low-income communities are very unlikely to be sterilized, whereas the sterilization rate of pets in medium and high-income communities is in the 80% or, or thereabouts. And that's, of course, driven by economics, and also availability, because there are very few veterinary practices in some of these low-income communities. So so it's awkward trying to get your animal to a vet, even if you had the means to do that. Transport is another big issue. So the veterinary care becomes a, an important part of the book because it, 
it's a distinguishing factor between what happens in medium and high income communities in the United States and low income communities in the United States. So, so that's why there's a lot of material in the book about what do you do? Do you sterilize the animal? And why would you do that? And why is there a difference between different income levels in different parts of the country? So that was one of the framing features that came out in the research that Arnie was doing. And I would emphasize, by the way, that even though my name's on the book as an author, a co-author, and I have read the book and helped with some of the writing, Arnie is the primary ethnographer, has done, done all the field work. And so he has a much richer understanding and, and viewpoint of what's going on. But I'd be happy to talk about some of the challenges that uh, people in low-income communities have to face if they have pets. Yeah, that is really the the issue I wanted to delve into then. But I do highly recommend the book itself to people who are interested because it does go into a lot of detail. One of the things that these two areas had in common, which I think might make them kind of special and interesting to study, is that they both, as you pointed out, they have shelters, they have organizations and really good shelters and services, including vet care that are available for free or no cost, which, you know, relieves the, the most obvious reason why people who are living in poverty don't seek animal care is because it's expensive. So how are these shelters funded? So the shelter in Costa Rica has a, a very active veterinary program. And the manager and founder of that shelter has, shall we say, a way with people. She really says, you know, if you come here for veterinary care, you need to contribute something. So she expects the clients to uh, pay something towards the cost of the care. And that's one aspect of her funding. The other funding comes from donors. uh, And for many years, when I was at the Humane Society of the United States, we were providing an annual donation to her to help support and help pay for a veterinarian for the clinic. I would say this, that you you say that these are good shelters. And in fact, the um, shelter in Costa Rica, AHPPA are the initials. It stands for, actually, I won't even go into the, it's it's just called El Refugio, the refuge. And the shelter in Costa Rica has seen a huge change in its intake and its adoption program. And now it's it, it's classified. If you were if it was in the United States, it would be identified as a no-kill shelter. I.e., ninety percent of the animals that it receives are adopted out and find good homes, or ninety percent or more. It has proved to be very successful, and it has changed. I think I can't prove this definite, definitely, but it has changed the way Costa Ricans deal with their animals in interesting and helpful ways for, in terms of animal protection. Yeah, it it really does demonstrate how hugely important having that kind of leadership is. And what about the shelter in North Carolina? Well, so the Humane Society of Charlotte uh, is, serves an area in Charlotte that's West Charlotte that's low income, primarily minority, and have, has all of the usual issues that you would expect. It's a food desert, it's a veterinary desert, it's a health desert, you know. So you have these communities, the Pets for Life, group that works on in low-income communities refers to it as the yellow blob. There's this area in these communities that have very few services. So this particular community in Charlotte that's served by the Humane Society of Charlotte is low-income, primarily minority, and, and challenging in terms of accessing any type of service, let alone grocery stores or things of that nature, or veterinary, veterinary practices. So it the, the local shelter is providing services to these communities. And there are all the sorts of usual issues about, well, if you don't have the money, how can you have a pet and this sort of thing? So there are a variety of sort of concerns that have been expressed over the years. And what the ethnography indicates is that this has an impact in how people perceive this help that is being offered by a, this no-kill shelter. And not always in a positive way because their experiences when they go to the shelter don't, aren't necessarily particularly positive. One of the insights the book shows is that the shelter has to change how it reaches out into these communities in order to gain their trust and gain their willingness to partake of these um, low-income or free services. 
Yeah, that I found that to be one of the most interesting insights from the book that that it's not just cost. I mean, even if you even if you make it free or at least spay and neuter or vet care, uh, other kinds of vet care, even if you make it free or very low cost, it's not just cost. And I think that's such an important insight. So can you talk about go a little bit into a little more detail about some of the barriers that keep people from going to that shelter and getting what is really something they can afford, but they still have blocks in in why they would want to seek it. Well, transport, I mentioned, is a huge problem. Many people in these communities don't have cars, so they have to beg, borrow a ride to get to the shelter or to get to a veterinarian. That's not always easy. Somebody who has a car may say, well, I'll give you a ride, but you have to pay me, so that's an additional cost. The people, you know, may have jobs. They can't take off from the jobs to go to the shelter. Um, and so the working, when the shelters are open or not open is a factor here. And the shelters don't always understand that they need to be open when their potential clients can access them. And so, so that's one of the things that is a challenge. So it's transport I mentioned. But then there's also this sort of stigma that's associated with low-income communities and having pets. There's the sort of long-standing sense that if you don't have, if you can't afford to have a pet and treat it appropriately in the minds of the the person providing whatever help they might be, then you shouldn't have a pet. And so, so there's that sort of issue. Animal control, of course, is a is a law enforcement division, and the experience that people in these communities have with law enforcement is generally not particularly positive. It's also, there's there's a social work element and the experience that people in these communities have with social workers is not positive. And so you, you're overcoming a number of potential barriers that people might have, sort of, well, I don't want to go there because. And so there's a lot of problems with people going to a place and finding that what they feared is actually what happens, you know. And so it's, you see this sort of thing. People remember the stuff that sort of feeds into their the standard view of the world, they don't remember the stuff that doesn't, or they don't comment on the on the good stuff. They remember the bad stuff and say, well, you know, that's what happened to me then, and therefore it's always going to happen. And they then repeat that to their friends and neighbors. And so there's a general resistance to taking, uh, going and accessing some of these free services. Yeah, it's certainly a story I've heard elsewhere that, I mean, nobody wants to look be looked down upon. And if if... There are differences in the way people who don't have a lot of money or there are class differences in the way people treat their animals. And if you're going to be criticized for that, you're not going to go. It's a very compelling thought. And one of the things that was really interesting about this study, there were two groups. They were in totally different cultures, different countries, but similar class. So let's talk about income that income has an enormous effect on people's attitudes towards their companion animals, perhaps even more than the fact that they live in different countries and essentially different cultures. I would argue that income doesn't have an uh, impact on attitude, but it does have an impact on behavior. And so that's, that's one of the key issues here is that people without money or without resources have more trouble providing support than people with money and with resources. So, so it's, it's more about the behavior issues rather than the, the attitude issues. The human-animal bond appears to be as strong in West Charlotte as it is in Washington suburbs. But I mean, that's not a major issue. It's just what people are able then to do to support that bond. That's, that's, that's more of a challenge. Not many of the animals are sterilized. It's, a, it's an expense that not many people can afford in these communities. And I've already seen it work. That's the other thing, is that what we find in, say, a place like Costa Rica, when you actually go out and offer these sterilization services in, in these uh, outreach clinics, it changes the way people behave with their animals. And they suddenly say, oh, that's what I do to take care of the animals. It's not that they're, they've just never been shown what to do. And so they, 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 they now have a, a modeled behavior and they start mimicking that behavior. And so the way that people interact with their animals changes. I'm convinced that this is a really important component to these sterilization outreach clinics. It's not so much 
that you're sterilizing 100 animals. It's that you're changing the behavior of 1,000 people. Yeah, that does seem to be very, very important in having an effect on animals. In addition to that, as we mentioned at the beginning, you started out to, to, to talk about vet care, but being poor is hard in a million ways. It's not just hard in your ability to access vet care. And there are other barriers created by poverty other than the lack of access to vet care that can really affect people's relationship with animals. And I think, at least from what I've seen, particularly in working in New York City, is housing. <laughs> just If people are going to get evicted on a fairly regular basis, and that is happening way too often, at least in this country, maybe the housing issues are different in Costa Rica. Obviously, the the level of commitment you can make to your animal is going to be different. I mean, you're just living in in a constantly tenuous circumstance. So should part of the goals of the animal protection movement to be protections from eviction, more rental housing that accepts animals, just helping people find housing where they can create a stable relationship with animals? That is a critical factor because housing stability is much lower in a low-income community than in a middle-class or upper-income community. So people are constantly losing housing and having to move, and that's always a challenge when you have a pet to take with you, especially if that pet happens to be a dog that has a reputation. So the new owner of the housing may say, well, you can only have a dog that's under 25 pounds in weight, you know, and so that then restricts the type of housing that you you can find and all, and it is a very big part of the problem that people in low-income communities have in terms of identifying who can take the dog. If I have to leave and go somewhere else, can I find somebody who has housing that will, will accept the dog? That's a, a major factor in these communities. It's, I'm not sure it's as much of a factor in a place like Costa Rica, although housing restrictions are, exist globally, so that's not... I haven't heard that housing is such a big factor in Costa Rica, but it may be. It's just I may not, I may not be talking to the right people. Yeah, and, and actually another issue that came up particularly in Costa Rica which I found really fascinating, uh, and maybe in both communities, I'm not sure, is this like a tendency to see animals as a little bit less our babies and a little bit more independent contractors. They're living their own lives, but their lives are intertwined with ours. And I'm kind of wondering whether, obviously, it's an important goal to relieve the barriers to taking good care of animals, but, but do we really want to just achieve something similar to current middle-class relationships with companion animals? Or is there any place for the notion that that we've all actually lost something when so many people see them in a kind of infantilized way? Is there is there room to, to learn something here from people's relationships with animals in other, maybe even lower-income settings? There are certainly some people in who study dog behavior, who think that dogs that live on the streets have a much better life than dogs that live inside homes. That may be true in one sense, that they may be more prone to accidents and disease than the dogs that live inside homes. And so health-wise, they may be better off if they're living inside homes, but that's a rather paternalistic approach to whether or not the dog is enjoying him or herself. But I mean, I remember when I first came down, when we first came down to uh, current home, I was living in Massachusetts, and we moved down to the Washington area in 1997, and we moved into an upscale neighborhood that has two-acre lots and, you know, lots of green space. And there were also lots of dogs that were roaming around at the time, off-leash, most with colors, but a fair number that were roaming around off-leash. Today, I don't see that happening. I don't see dogs roaming. There's been a big change in how dogs are managed in my neighborhood in the 20 years that we've lived here, or 25 years that we've lived here. And that led me to start thinking about the changes that have occurred over longer periods. So back in the 1950s, 1960s, there were maybe 25 or 30% of dogs were roaming free on the streets. Now they were owned, I suspect they were all owned, but that's th those dogs have, have disappeared from American streets by and large. They're still in places like Native American reservations and maybe some inner city communities, 
but by and large, they've disappeared from American streets. But they're present on streets in Costa Rica and in India and in Africa and places like that. So these are roaming dogs that have a home or have somebody who says, yes, that's my dog. They're not actually in the house. They may not be allowed in the house. They may sleep outside, but they're provided with some food, maybe some water. So there's what I've seen happening in Costa Rica over the last 25 years is a change in that relationship. So in, in 2003, there was a survey done in Costa Rica that asked people where the dog slept at night, and 27% of the dog slept indoors. Today, that figure is almost 70% of the dogs are sleeping indoors at night. So, so they're much more controlled, and that, you could say, is better for the dogs and for the people, but the dogs have also lost something. You know, they're not sort of free to sort of roam around and greet their friends and do whatever it is that dogs do in the middle of the day when they're not under the control of their human owners. So there's, there is a loss involved in that, but then you have a much healthier animals. They live longer. Uh, typically, an animal that is properly cared for is going to live twice as long as a street dog, at least, or at least twice as long. So you're giving up freedom for some lifespan longevity, more years, and more attention, so more cuddling from your owner. It's an interesting philosophical point as to which is better. You know, I mean, there's always the argument, is it better to be a, a happy pig or so, uh, unhappy Socrates? You know, so, I mean, when you start looking at what is better for an individual, you know, so I, I suspect that dogs regret the fact that they've lost some freedom. By bringing it up, I'm not saying I think that we should go, you know, just have street dogs or whatever. Neither answer is entirely satisfying. I'd just like to, I, I appreciate your willingness to accept that there are advantages to dogs in both of these and neither is perfect. And perhaps we can keep that in mind and learn a little something about about what is better for our dogs. And maybe, uh, you know, I, I'm the worst. Like I, I would never let a dog off leash. Like I'm, I baby them. But I'm not saying that I have the perfect answer. They're, they're not babies. They're grown-ups. Don't we all? I mean, so our dog, Abby, is a sweetheart and she gets thoroughly babied in our house. Uh, she hates uh, the sound of lawnmowers, so if there's somebody mowing a lawn in the neighborhood, she wants in. She doesn't want it to be outside. But Aww. otherwise, she loves being <laughs> outside in the sunshine. And so we have an uh, invisible fence, so she's free to roam in, in our property. And she goes out and terrorizes the chipmunks and whatever other creatures are out there. She goes after the frogs as well. and But mostly the frogs are... Um, protected from Abby because every time they move, she starts back. I mean, it's it's funny to watch her sort of looking at a frog and then the frog hops and Abby will dart back. So she loves to be outside, but not if there's lawnmowers and not if it's raining. She does not like being outside if it's raining. And when it's really hot, she likes to be inside in the air conditioning. So, you know. Yeah, no, they definitely cooperate with being babied frequently. <laughs> they can be very enthusiastic about it. And it's always appreciated when, even if they still have their hunting instincts, that they're not that good at it. So we don't send them out there. That's always a problem with the idea of cats uh, going out there to, to kill, which is what they do. But anyway, I digress. I want to talk about Wellbeing International, which is, of course, the organization that you're currently you founded and are currently with. But before that, I have one more question, because the goal here was to find out barriers that existed for people to make use of low cost veterinary care. And in both of the places that you studied, you pointed out there were there were effective shelters. So veterinary care was at least somewhat available, actually pretty available. But what about the other question? How a lot of people are living with animals and they do not have availability of low-cost veterinary care. How does that change? Is this a charitable endeavor? Is this like people from wealthier countries making this happen? They're not even making it happen. I mean, in the U.S., we still have places that don't have available cheap veterinary care. So we may solve the problem of getting people to use it, but how do we get it there for them to use? So it's a complicated issue. And what I'm seeing at the moment is that there's a big increase in um, veterinary resources and veterinary capacity in Costa Rica. 
So the number of veterinary clinics in Costa Rica has probably quadrupled since 2000 and providing additional employment for veterinarians in the country. But also the reason why that the number of veterinarians has quadrupled is because people are taking their animals to the vet. And so this is, there's an interesting issue here that happens. So veterinarians are typically pretty unhappy with services that are provided low cost or free by uh, humane societies and animal organizations. They regard it as unwarranted competition. And if the local animal group is tax exempt and they're not, uh, they have to pay business taxes, then that's an added insult to injury, is that uh, that's a problem. But what, uh, what I think's happened in Costa Rica in the last 25 or 30 years is that the animal movement has increased the value of animals, of companion animals, and has shown people that, you know, you should take your animal to the vet. And that's why the veterinary profession has expanded so dramatically in Costa Rica in that last, in the last 20, 25 years. If you look in the United States, companion animal practices and small animal clinics were relatively rare in the 1940s and then sort of came roaring ahead as pet ownership and people's interest in sort of taking care of their animals uh, increased. And so we can track uh, how much people spend on pets and the proportion of one's household income that goes on your pets has been going up steadily since 1950, according to the U.S. Commerce Department statistics. And the number of small animal clinics has been going up steadily in the United States. And so I suspect that, in fact, it benefits a local veterinary community to have these types of services provided. Because at the end of the day, if so in a place like Bali in Indonesia, for example, there was an animal group that was providing mobile clinic services to local villages. But they were only there maybe once a month. So the rest of the month, there are no vets, you know, there's no free service. You now have to go to your private practice. And what they found was that the local veterinary, veterinarians, the professional veterinarians, opposed them initially and then started welcoming them in. And the reason why that happened was because for those 30 days of the month that the, the free clinic was not available, people were take, going, now going to the local vet. And so they, you know, they start spending money on the local vet. It increases the capacity, the demand for veterinary services. Veterinary services grow, infrastructure develops. And so it's beneficial to the veterinary profession as well as to the animals, as well as to the pet owner. That's a fascinating story, the, the Bali story. That's fascinating. And Costa Rica, it's, I, I haven't been able to document it as, as tightly as I would like. But there has been a huge increase in veterinary capacity in the number of clinics that operate in, in Costa Rica. I mean, in a place like Jaipur in India, there were basically two veterinary clinics in the city of Jaipur at the turn of the century. There are now 21. And so, again, that happens because people are now valuing the animals more, are prepared to pay for that extra veterinary care. And I just think it's interesting that it also it just allows people to allow themselves to value the animals if they become capable of caring for them. If, because, other, I mean, obviously, if you know that, that you can't care for your animal and you can't get food for your animal and you can't get vet care for your animal, you're going to resist wanting to get attached to that animal. So it, it all works to the positive. And then you don't have as much pleasure in the relationship. So it does all work together. Speaking of working together, that was such a great segue that I just thought of because I want to talk about Wellbeing International. And and it seemed like one of the themes of Wellbeing International is to see people, animals, and the environment as kind of intertwined systems. Can you talk about why that you consider that such an important overall view at this point? So it happens that um, my wife has uh, spent a lot of her career, she's a CPA, she spent a lot of her career working in human development NGOs and things of that nature, disaster response NGOs. She has that background. I have this background of working in an animal protection organization for professionally for 35, 40 years. And so when we got to that stage in our lives where we're moving on, she was indicating, well, maybe we should start our own NGO. And so um, she came up with the name Wellbeing International. It's resonated with me 
And then she came up with the tagline, seeking solutions for people, animals, and the environment. And that certainly resonated with me because one of the things you see is that you can't really solve animal problems without solving people problems and environmental problems too. And so if we want something that's truly sustainable, and I compliment the United Nations for developing the Sustainable Development Goals, but they haven't done it as comprehensively as they should do it. You need to include animal well-being and environmental well-being in that equation in order to get something that's truly sustainable. And, and there's some fascinating elements to that that we've been exploring as, at Wellbeing International. I mean, for example, I started off, I spent most of my career working on animal protection but because we're looking at human and environmental issues, I've also been looking recently at, at human well-being and human happiness. And it's fascinating if you start looking at the research on human happiness. Do you know that there's a low point in happiness overall at the age in, in your 30s? And then as you age up to the 70s, before you start becoming decrepit, your happiness increases steadily from your 30s up to your 70s. That totally resonates with me. Your 30s are the best time. Like, they're the best time. You should be at your happiest. Like, your health, well, mo for most people, if you're healthy, if you have an income, you're strong, you're having fun. And I would, you know, having recent, fairly recently entered my 70s, I would definitely say it's just so much easier, except for the impending doom. <laughs> yeah, except for the impending doom. I mean, Confucius commented about that. had his statement. Confucius has statements for most things. And he sort of talked about 15, he had to learn a lot of stuff. And then he had to develop his career and, stru and structure. You know, but finally, when he came to be 70, he could just do what he wanted to do. You know? Right. Of course, Social Security helps. Yeah, Social Security <laughs> helps. Yeah. I'd never thought about it that way. And, and so I, our children are now in their 30s and embarking on their careers and families and things like that. And, it's, um, and you can see, I mean, it's a stressful period. You know, there, there are more stresses in your life than there are right now. You know, at 70s, you know, we're doing what we want to do and sort of pleasing ourselves rather than taking care of, well, we have to take care of ourselves, but our, our parents are, are, have died, so we don't have that worry going on. And our children are generally old enough to take care of themselves, although, so there's always a bit of a worry about the children. But, I mean, you, you know, you're in a much better place overall. I understand that the work that you're doing the more specific work, aside from the overall view, has been focused to some extent on Ukraine. I assume that it's in response to the crisis going on there. Can you just tell us a little bit about your work there and the current situation regarding animals? Well, in fact, Eastern Europe is an interesting place in terms of animal welfare. They've never really had a particularly strong nonprofit community in Eastern Europe. There are nonprofits that work there and that are having an impact, but the tend to be smaller and less poor, and less well-resourced compared to, say, the RSBCA in the United Kingdom or the German Tierschutzbund or some, some of these other large organizations. And so they, they've, been, they've struggled a bit in terms of what they can do and can accomplish. And so we're looking at Ukraine as an opportunity in a sense. Rahm Emanuel, one of the democratic politicians, maybe it was Kissinger, said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And there's an opportunity here to start, I think, sort of developing a better resourced um, animal protection community in Eastern Europe. And Ukraine is certainly going to need to do something. They, they, people of their millions of refugees have left the country with their animals. And so they're addressing, having to address what happens with their animals. They're having help support from people in Slovakia, in Romania, in Poland, lots of support from, from those communities. And everybody needs some help there. And then, of course, there are the people who've left Ukraine and didn't take their animals with them, those animals are now roaming the streets. And there are individuals who are going out and feeding them. I mean, despite the dangers that they are facing, uh, there have been several of these animal activists who've been killed by soldiers. So, I mean, it's a dangerous task, but they need help. So we put together a consortium of groups, one of which is Save the Dogs and Other Animals in Romania. Another is the Slovakian equivalent of the RSPCA. Another is um, the Street Dog Coalition, which is a Colorado-based veterinary operation that has been helping the pets of street people 
and they have volunteers who are now going over to Romania, the border with Ukraine, and helping get people across the border and support their themselves and their, their animals. And so there's we just felt that it was be we would be missing an opportunity if we didn't try to sort of engage people and engage donors in that respect. We've had one donor who's t- gone over there and taken food and medicines to Kiev, for example. I won't say we've had a huge impact, but we're, we're doing what we can to sort of make the world a better place. It has been, I, I found it extraordinary how, uh, just because I've been around for a long time and the difference between how the response has been to people wanting to bring their companion animals who are fleeing and how that scene, the press is very sympathetic. There seemed, the other countries seem to be very sympathetic about people coming in with, with their animals. That just seems new to me and a really, really positive sign of the times in the midst of a dreadful, dreadful crisis. This whole issue of animals and disasters really had its genesis back when Hurricane Andrews slammed into Florida and destroyed homesteads south of Miami. There was some people suddenly started saying, wait a minute, what are happening to the animals? Because the zoo animals were, you know, the enclosures were destroyed, the zoo animals escaped. People had to deal with some of those issues. Companion animals, so the homes were destroyed, people had to deal with that. And in fact, Southern Florida ended up with piles and piles of dog food. Everybody was so concerned and, and sent lots of pet food down there. But it's that then led to a more professional approach to animals and disasters. And then Katrina was the next, shall we say, step that sort of created this general notion that animals need to be included in disaster planning. And so the Pets Act requires the communities to include animals in their disaster planning. And so now everybody has at least a modicum of a plan to address not just the people, but the animals. And I always remember... In Katrina, there was that young fellow who was being put on the bus and he had lost his dog, I think, Snowball. Uh, is there any of us who do not remember that, do not remember Snowball? Yeah, I mean, Snowball, Snowball was the iconic creature, that a pet that appointed to the need to include animals in disaster response. You know, and we've seen the same thing happening in, in, in Japan with the Fukushima disaster. The animals were left behind and there was all sorts of issues about what we should do. And so the Japanese are, are beginning to address the same sorts of questions. Yeah. And the thing I see in, in Ukraine, which I think is probably emblem, and it, it really links to everything you've been saying in this interview, that as the systems have improved and as, re- as respect has been given to the idea that animals matter in these situations, you just see everyday responses, like from the press and from other people like kind of giving themselves permission to care about this and think think that this is a legitimate issue and and to engage their own emotions about helping people help their animals. So it's very inspiring. I wish we could I wish we could spread it to every issue that involves animals. Well, I I think it is spreading, and I I mean I know I've been in the movement for forty years, uh, for more than forty years, and there was a time when. I would be confronted at cocktail parties. Why are you working on animal issues when there's so many human problems, you know? Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Or I haven't had that happen to me in decades now. No longer are people saying, well, it's not, you know, it's not important. We have to help people first, then the animals. And in fact, I think it's, it is two sides of the same coin, that you encourage a nurturing behavior to people, animals, and the environment. And that doesn't really matter what you're what you're focusing on, um, that nurturing behavior spills over into the other spheres. Well, it's very inspiring, and th- I'm I'm so thrilled that we were able to talk about it today, both in the specific situations involved in the book Underdog and and the more general goals you have for Wellbeing International. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andrew. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. 
Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxieties are rising. Two stories today from the National Pork Producers Council. First one. Massachusetts state law delay keeps breakfast on the table. Of course, nothing has caused the pork industry more anxiety than the idea that they will have to stop using gestation crates and thus the continuing fight against California's Prop 12, which has gotten most of the attention of course is now pending in the Supreme Court, which we're all worried about. The big problem for Prop 12 is that it would not only ban the use of gestation crates, you know, and other other things as well within California, but would ban the sale of pork that is uh, uh, cut from the from the dead bodies of pigs who who were in the supply line where gestation crates were used. Now, it's easy to forget that California is not the only state. Massachusetts also passed a similar law subsequently, but the lawsuit is about Prop 12. Well, of course, it, it makes sense that they would try to put a hold on the implementation of the Massachusetts law as well until the Supreme Court resolves the issue regarding the California law. The Massachusetts law was supposed to go into effect on August 15th of 2022. Of course, it had a very long, long lead time, as these laws always do. And now it is going to have a longer lead time because a federal court judge for the District of Massachusetts today signed a court order approving an agreement to delay enforcement of the law. This was as a result of a, a, a lawsuit filed by the National Pork Producers Council and a bunch of other bozos. They filed the suit seeking to stop the law's impeding implementation until the Supreme Court makes a decision, and of course, also to find the law unconstitutional in a way similar to the arguments being made about California's Prop 12. As Terry Walters, the NPPC president and owner of Stony Creek Farms in Minnesota, this is a significant outcome as NPPC continues to push to preserve the rights of America's pig farmers to raise hogs in the way that is best for their animals and maintains a reliable supply of pork for consumers. Don't you just want to Oh, God, how do we read this stuff? Of course, I'm the one who reads it and makes you listen to it. I'm sorry. But, you know, we have to find out what's going on with these people. And the fact is is that nothing, nothing has caused the anxieties of the pork industry to rise more than these laws, which would uh, would. and, And in fact, as this article points out, Massachusetts goes even further than Prop 12 because it doesn't allow the transshipment of whole pork through Massachusetts to get to other states. And according to this, $2 billion worth of uh, dead pigs moves into neighboring New England states every year from from Massachusetts. Can you imagine like how many dead pigs that is? You know, this is pretty standard that a court would issue this. The question is before the Supreme Court, like it would be silly to implement this law until the Supreme It's standard legal process. So they're making a very big deal about the fact that they won this, but it would be shocking if the court had not put this on hold until, as as is happened 30 days after the Supreme Court issues its ruling. A lot rides on that case and has has everything that the animal law movement done, uh, like, does anything last? Anything? It's it's a constant fight, but it's always nice to see that, that they are upset. And one of the things that proves that they're upset is actions like this and statements like this one. Pig farmers and swine veterinarians are in the best position to make decisions about how to care for their animals. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. Oh, my God. Activist-led ballot initiatives like those in California and Massachusetts risk reversing decades of progress on both animal health and on-farm sustainability, which could undermine the global competitiveness of the U.S. pork industry. 
these people. They're just, they have no shame. Well, we all know that. The world is crazy, but we all know that too. All right, I'll go on. Uh, all right. Also from National Pork Producers Council. They're also upset about the fact that they can't get workers. So they recently signed a letter with a bunch of other uh, folks on visa issues. And they say that progress is being made toward a workable solution for expansion and reform of the H-2A visa program. But this isn't a done deal yet. Well, the H-2A visa program is the one that allows uh, uh, visas for seasonal farm workers. So this is, you know, mostly like when the crops come in, you can you can bring people in from other countries to pick them, pay them crap and then send them back. One of our our visa programs. And, you know, people do come because people need the money. So they want this to be different because they're worried about, you know, they're not talking about crops. They're talking about slaughterhouses and uh, they can't get enough people to work in their slaughterhouses, maybe because they killed so many of them with COVID. Um, So according to this article, to bridge the gap in domestic labor availability, National Pork Producers Council supports visa system reform, reform that provides agricultural employers with sustained access to year round labor. So they don't want it to just be seasonal. They want it to be year round and a pathway to legal status for those with agricultural experience already in the United States. Well, that second part is certainly a good idea. H-2A expansion to year-round labor is clearly needed to ensure that U.S. livestock agriculture, like livestock agriculture, is not seasonal, unlike the kind of agriculture that the H-2A visa was meant to uh, serve, so that uh, U.S. livestock agriculture can compete globally. That's really their theme, isn't it? And continue to provide safe and affordable pork to Americans and consumers worldwide. And then at the very end, NPPC also supports inclusion of packing plant work as agricultural labor. Yeah, all of a sudden working in a slaughterhouse is being a farm worker. They really just want a special visa program just for them. No, no, probably get it. Uh, Three in five Americans can't define what carbon neutral means. This is from Watt Poultry. And, you know, I'm not sure I can define what carbon neutral means or what people mean when they say carbon neutral because it's all it's kind of like net zero it depends on who's saying it and what they mean by it this is by one elizabeth doman she starts off by saying sustainability and climate change are hot button issues but shoppers need more education about brand efforts i don't think brand efforts are really what shoppers need education about let me start with the term net zero that's not what this article is about but but it i always find it confusing because some people, you know, when they're when they're redoing their house and putting solar panels on top and, and 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 insulation in the walls and all of that, they call their house net zero because their house is actually producing through its solar panels or its geothermal wells or whatever as much energy as it is using. So the net energy use is is zero, like it produces as much as it uses. That seems fairly simple. However, that's not the only way it's used. And this is very confusing. A lot of people get very angry at the term net zero because a lot of people use it to talk about carbon offsets. And carbon offsets are largely bullshit. This is when corporations, you know, they use a lot of energy and then they buy like tree planting or or whatever, whatever. And, and there's a lot of articles that have been out saying that a lot of these carbon offsets, like the kind that the airplanes have, uh, you know, you can buy a carbon offset if you fly. Well, it's it's largely bullshit. It doesn't nearly offset the amount of carbon that you're actually responsible for releasing into the atmosphere. Uh, so it's not too surprising that nearly five, three in five consumers either don't know what the term carbon neutral means or they incorrectly define it because people people define these things in different ways. This article uh, really wants brands <laughs> to be to appear as purpose driven because they have a greater chance of securing consumer loyalty. I guess they don't have a greater interest in, in saving the planet. All right. According to this article, poultry and egg companies typically achieve a carbon neutral status by purchasing offsets, donations to projects that reduce carbon emissions by planting trees or sequestering carbon. And, and as I pointed out, that's, you know, largely bullshit. This new place in the UK, Morrison's, a supermarket chain, that recently debuted its own brand of carbon neutral eggs, quote unquote, carbon neutral eggs. And so they're doing it themselves. This is what they do. 
they have these hens, they have their hens, and they feed them with insects. And if you're picturing hens like pecking around for for worms or whatever, get that out of your head because they they produce the insects in large insect farms on site and then feed them to the hens. That wasn't enough because it probably doesn't save a whole lot of carbon. But they also put up a um, large wind turbine and solar panels and a carbon sequestration program that they claim offsets their remaining emissions. You know, this is all nonsense. Just eat plants. Well, you guys know that. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of The Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.